Good afternoon and welcome to the Manitoba Farm Journal. I'm your host, Candace Dirksen. Coming up this afternoon, Marlo Rickman, Soil Management Specialist with Manitoba Agriculture, highlights what we can and cannot control when it comes to building a resilient soil system. And we'll have details on the Manitoba Grazing Exchange launched yesterday by the Manitoba Organic Alliance and Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. The latest farm news and market numbers also coming up over the next 60 minutes. The time is 12 o'clock. Here's a look at our local news. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Manitoba Farm Journal. Marlo Rickman presented at the 2022 Manitoba Forage Seed Association Conference this week and pinpointed the things we can and cannot control when it comes to building a resilient soil system. When we're thinking about some of these impacts and some of the uh, soil issues or things that don't build, say, a resilient soil, we have control over. This is a very classic picture showing tillage erosion. A lot of times people think that those white or eroded knolls on the top of the hill, that pale coloring that looks like it maybe is just a dry soil, it's really a lack of topsoil. This is sea, uh, subsoil or sea horizon parent material exposed at the soil surface on the top of these knolls. And it is not wind erosion. It is actually tillage erosion or the act of tillage equipment going up and over these hills and dragging the soil from the, the topsoil down to the bottom of the hill. And you see that, that the soil is darker in the lower areas. And yes, some of that darkness may be coming to the fact that there's a bit more moisture down there. But in general, if you actually look at topsoil thickness, the A horizon is very thick down in those areas because it's been physically moved from the top of the hill down to the bottom. This is something we have control over. We can stop causing this kind of problem if you're in hillier landscapes and have that kind of erosion. We can also you know, pick the soil up from the bottom and put it back on the top of the hill and get that topsoil back to where it came from and get those knolls to be productive again. Um, so we do have some kind of physical control over some of these issues. We have physical control over things like compaction. Now, that does not mean that compaction won't happen. Um, the reality is the only way to stop compaction from happening is to not travel on the field, specifically when it is wet or moist on the field. Is that something that I expect you to do? Absolutely not, because we need to get on the field at various times of the year, and we don't have control over whether or not we can sit and wait for the perfect time in terms of how much moisture there is. Re you know, expecting or understanding the fact that compaction will happen, we can still do things to try to decrease it at times. And so we can minimize it by minimizing travel across the field in random directions. Um, you know, you can see the travel up and down the field, say where the sprayer or the combine has moved through back and forth. But if you see the crisscrosses across the field, those are the types of things we can decrease a little bit by thinking or being a bit more deliberate on how we're how we're traveling over the field wind erosion. We've been seeing a lot of this happening lately, usually on fields that have either been overworked or have very low amounts of residue that are left on the surface to slow that wind speed down. And when I say overworked, I mean that they've really destroyed the surface texture, uh, the structure on the surface, but also the smoother the surface that we've created. Say we create this seedbed in fall, this perfect seedbed, and it's nice and smooth and ready to go. The smoother it is on the surface, 
the more the wind can actually pick up across that surface in the spring when it's dry and pick those particles up and blow them off into the distance. And so if you're thinking about trying to decrease some of these effects, a lumpier, bumpier soil surface after tillage in the fall is actually a little bit less risk for blowing in the spring. So we have some control over these kinds of things. We can't control the weather, we can't control the wind, but we can control leaving something behind to slow that wind down and, and try to decrease some of the potential effect that this uh, wind might have in the future. Water erosion. This photo is actually following the 2011 flood. And there are things that, again, not something that's in our control. These gullies and things that were left behind as water flowed through some of these areas, these are extreme situations. It does not mean that we could control or fix this situation in all cases. Some things, again, are completely out of our control, but we may have ways of of mitigating some minor effects that can come along with this, having a soil that can absorb more or use more moisture or crop rotation that can use more moisture when we're dealing with these extreme events. And then on the opposite side, dry years, which we know we've been experiencing, also can increase some of those things like uh, salinity. We see more salinity happen. This is a soil management problem that is prevalent across Manitoba through the Canadian prairies. It's patchy, it really depends on where we are, and it is not something that is easily in our control because it's something that's naturally there. It's something that's always been there. There's soil or salts that are dissolved in the groundwater, in the soil, uh, like in the soil, subsoil down below. And especially if we're in dry situations, following a wet cycle where the water table may have been a little bit closer to the surface, that drying draws water up to the surface and then the evaporation leaves the salt crust behind. So again, these are some extreme things, not something that we can easily control, but there are things that we can do to mitigate some of these issues like utilizing perennials that are more salt, sense, uh, salt tolerant, um, decreasing tillage, de you know, leaving a mulch over the surface, something to decrease the evaporation that's happening from there. Or, you know, worst case scenario, I know that these areas, if they are just white salt flats and nothing growing, it's full of kochia in there, as you can see in that photo, mowing that kochia down, um, keeping it vegetative rather than allowing it to go to seed. That can be a simple solution in some cases. That was Marla Rickman, Soil Management Specialist with Manitoba Agriculture. She presented at the 2022 Manitoba Forage Seed Association Conference this week. A look at what's happening in the markets this afternoon is coming up. I'm Candace Dirksen. Canada is a key player in the international beef trade. Beef exports were up in volume in 2021 by 22% and 39% in value from January to November. Vaughn Jackson, the Director of Policy and International Relations with the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, says we've been hitting new records on exports since 2016, thanks to having some key trade agreements in place. The Canada-Korea Free Trade Agreement, you know, in 2015, and then CETA in 2017 with, with the EU, and then CPTPP that came into force in 2019, you know, KUSMA that sort of kept the North American engine going. And now if we look at expansion, you know, of CPTPP and ASEAN, uh, you know, there's going to be future um, blocks that are added to this really uh, wonderful uh, puzzle that is leading to these great, um, these great outcomes for us. 
She notes Canada exports about 50% of beef it produces, which adds another $775 per head to what producers get. And cattle producers are looking at options to help extend their winter feed supplies this year. With the drought and feed shortage last year, producers may be looking at having to utilize some lower-quality straw or slough hay to help stretch out their feed. Livestock and feed extension specialist Catherine Lang says mixing in molasses can help improve the palatability of the straw. So be able to get those cows actually interested in eating them. It is going to add a little bit of protein, potentially a little bit of energy, as well as a mineral pack if that is included. You're going to get a little more nutrition out of those lower quality forages as well. If you are getting some non-protein nitrogen or urea added into that molasses mixture, you could get some improved rumen microbial activity because of that. And lots of folks do like using that molasses product because it does help decrease the dust. She notes the recommended application rate of molasses per 1,000 pounds of straw is 70 to 100 pounds, which works out to about 25 to 35 dollars per bale. Stay tuned. The Prairie Egg Wire is coming up. Good afternoon and welcome to the Prairie Egg Wire for Friday, January 28th. I'm Candace Dirksen. Coming up today, part two of Dr. Danny Blair's discussion on agriculture and the environment presentation made at this week's annual general meeting for Keystone Egg Producers. Dr. Blair is geography professor at the University of Winnipeg and co-director of the Prairie Climate Center. He discussed the impacts of climate change and the implications for agriculture. We continue today with his review of climate change around Canada. Well, as you might know, if the world warms up by two degrees, Canada warms up by about four degrees. The rate of warming across Canada is about double the global rate because of our particular location in the mid-latitudes and and higher latitudes, Canada is warming up at about double the global rate, and the Arctic is warming up at about triple the global rate. So when you hear in the news that the world will maybe reach 1.5 degrees, that means means three degrees across Canada as a whole, and uh, four and a half degrees in the Arctic. Now the problem, of course, with uh, changing the average temperatures, or one of the problems in changing the average temperatures, is that the extremes, the probability of extremes changes. Now, obviously, the, as, as we shift towards a warmer climate, if the averages change, uh, we see fewer really cold days. We're still going to have cold days. We're just not going to get as many of them. But we are going to get more of the hot days. Because the bell curve, because the normal curve shifts to the right, the probability of really high temperatures goes up the probability of really cold temperatures goes down. As a brief aside, we are definitely across Canada seeing less of the cold weather. Here's a graph that shows that, for example, Alert in Nunavut has experienced since 1950 fewer and fewer minus 30 degree days. This is a graph of the number of minus 30 degree days every winter and Alert way the heck up at the top of Canada and many, almost all, northern stations in the Arctic are seeing very many fewer minus 30 degree days. And if we follow the the RCP high carbon scenario, RCP 8.5, at the end of this century, alert may only have a couple weeks of minus 30, whereas in the 1950s, they had 140 days or so. 
Um, climate change is happening and it's very evident in the Arctic of Canada, but also very evident in our part of the world as well. Now, of course, one of the big news items this year was the extreme temperatures in, in British Columbia, the remarkable extreme temperatures in, in uh, British Columbia and, and Washington and Oregon. Uh, as a clear example or a very good analog about what we should be experience, what we should expect to experience with global warming. There was a very, very unusual atmospheric pattern, a very, very strong ridge, a heat dome, they called it this year, in Western Canada at the end of June and the beginning of July. And that heat just built up and built up and built up and produced, of course, some remarkable temperatures in British Columbia and elsewhere. Here's a graph of uh, Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver's maximum daily temperatures, all the black dots are all the daily temperatures that it, it experienced, all the daily maximum temperatures from 1898 to the end of 2021. The red dots are what they experienced in 2021. And there you can see at the end of June, British Columbia, uh, Vancouver that is, had temperatures over 40 degrees in Vancouver. And Victoria had four days in a row of record temperatures maxing out just below my uh, plus 40 degrees. Jasper went over 40 degrees. Jasper, British, uh, uh, Alberta went over 40 degrees. But of course, what really got attention, uh, Canadians' attention and the world's attention was that Lytton, BC, which of course is known for a, a really warm summer climate, it had, it had four days in a row of progressively uh, higher and higher maximum temperatures uh, ever recorded in Lytton. And they maxed out at 49.6 degrees, the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada. Um, the previous was 45 degrees in Yellowgrass, Saskatchewan, in Mydale, Saskatchewan, and uh, in, back in 1937. Um, 19, Yellowgrass is where my mom actually grew up. So she, my mom was there for the previous, when she was a young girl, in Yellowgrass for the previous record high temperature ever recorded in Canada. And then it... As you can see, the temperatures this year in Lytton just were literally off the chart. A remarkable, uh, extreme meteorological event, um, indicative of the probability of really high temperatures going up as the, as the average temperatures go up. This uh, this event uh, shocked uh, climatologists such as myself. You know, we were just like, "What? This this just this doesn't make sense." And when we evaluate, or when uh, climate climate Climatologists, uh, statistical climatologists evaluated this. They they showed quite definitively that this could not have happened. These kinds of temperatures could not have happened without global warming or climate change, whatever you want to call it. They were so extreme that they lie far outside the range of historical observed temperatures. We saw that off the chart, and it, it is probably a, a, uh, in the most realistic statistical analysis of the event. It's estimated to be an event that should only occur once every a thousand years. And as the average temperatures of British Columbia and the world go up it will become more and more probable. And uh, that's unfortunate because these kinds of events do damage. They kill people in particular heat waves. Uh, 595 people died from the heat wave in British Columbia this year, 99 of them in uh, Vancouver. And why do people in, in Vancouver and British Columbia die from uh, heat waves? Because they don't have air conditioning. In Manitoba, we have the highest rate of air conditioning adopt, uh, adoption. 90% of the households in Winnipeg have, have air conditioning. In 2019, only 33% of the homes in BC had air conditioning and 28% in Vancouver and only 17 in Victoria. They have more now, but it was an ex this is a kind of climate event or a weather event that they're just not ready for. This is indicative of what we need to do. We need to get ready for these big changes in the future. 
and in ag, we need to get ready for them to take advantage of the benefits and to minimize the risks associated with these amazing changes in the climate system. As you might know, there was this enormous precipitation event in British Columbia as well, and that is indicative of climate change as well, because a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor. All of you know that. The air in the uh, summertime can hold a lot more water vapor and therefore the precipitation potential is much greater. And we saw that it, this in this atmospheric river event in British Columbia, in the same year that we had this incredible heat event, we had this incredible precipitation event where pre moisture poured in from the Pacific Ocean state and just kept doing so um, for a few days. And so a place like Hope BC had a, had a, a th um, 270, uh, 7.5 millimeters over two days, they had uh, a very, very large amount of precipitation in very short order, which is indicative of climate change again, because climate change says that we should experience more extreme precipitation events, and we are across the world. That's it for the Prairie Ag Wire for today. If you have any questions or opinions to share, send them to us by email to thefarmdesk at goldenwest.ca. I'm Candace Dirksen and thanks for listening. Have a good afternoon. The Prairie Aguire will return Monday on the Golden West Farm Network. And now for a look at your farm calendar. The Direct Farm Marketing Conference has moved online and is taking place February 1st to 5th. Visit directfarmmanitoba.ca for more information. An online beekeeping for the hobbyist course begins February 2nd at 7 o'clock. Sessions will be held every Wednesday except on the 23rd until March 30th. Cost is $230 and you can register with the University of Manitoba Faculty of Agriculture and Food Sciences. Manitoba Crop Alliance Combined Customer Workshops begin February 6th to 9th. The sessions following February 22nd to 25th and March 6th to 9th. Get all the details, including registration, on the Manitoba Crop Alliance website. Verified Beef Production Plus webinars are being held Tuesday evenings at 7 o'clock. These interactive webinars allow participants to view presentations as well as ask questions in real time. Pre-registration is required, so contact Melissa Atchison at 204-264-0294 or email verifiedbeefmanitoba at gmail.com. The official Manitoba Hunter Safety Course is available online. This is endorsed by the Province of Manitoba and Manitoba Wildlife Federation. Visit huntercourse.com to register. And Beef and Forage Days next week in Austin, Ericsdale and Grandview have been cancelled due to the current COVID situation. Continuing with the Manitoba Farm Journal here on this Friday afternoon, I spoke with Karen Clausen, Executive Director of the Manitoba Organic Alliance, which yesterday launched the Manitoba Grazing Exchange website in partnership with the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. I guess uh, talk a little bit about the purpose or the intent behind uh, this website. Yes, the intent behind the Manitoba Grazing Exchange is exactly what it sounds like. It's to connect people um, who want 
to either have their land grazed and people with something to graze them. So it's with for livestock producers who have probably cattle, but anything, goats, sheep, anything that can graze, and people who have either land that's um, cover crops, green manures, marginal lands, pasture lands, any sort of land that they think would be benefited um, to have some livestock grazing on it, which, to be honest, is most land. And how does the website work? Do farmers just log on and sign up, or how does that work? Yeah, it is super simple. It is a map. It's a Google map, actually. When you um, look at the homepage, you can create your own account. It's really simple, just a couple of questions to get you started. And then you find your farm on there and then make a little pin, just saying if you've got animals or cover crops or whatever it is you have um, that you want to offer, and then just put a little information about your farm on, and then it creates a little pin on the map, and then other people can find you. And we're hoping that people will, you know, be able to find people nearby and, and even people that they might not have expected, neighbors that they might not have expected that were interested in this sort of thing, and that will connect a lot of uh, people together that way. Okay. And talk a little bit about maybe um, the inspiration for, uh, for this. Yeah, the inspiration came actually from South Dakota. Their grazing exchange website's been in existence for a few years. And one of our board members caught on to this a few years ago and thought this would be a fantastic idea to bring bring up to Canada. And so that's where we got the inspiration, and we very gratefully have some funding from the Conservation Trust, which is through the Manitoba Habitat Heritage Corporation, um, to help get us started with this and bring it to Canada. And so in your opinion or experience even, uh, you know the benefits of, of, of establishing these kinds of connections. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many benefits for your soil. So for both livestock and, and people with the land, there's just lots of different things that this can, can help. Um, I know a lot of livestock producers are looking for, for land to graze and, and possibly land that's not too far away because a lot of people do have to ship their cattle off to the summer quite, quite far. And so this is hopefully a way to get some, them a little bit closer. Um, and for, for grain farmers and people with land, it's such a good way to improve the soil of your land, whether it's marginal land or, or whether it's your, your cropping land. It's excellent for soil health. Um, it, it's a great way to cycle nutrients. So for organic farmers, um, a big benefit is going to be that most of us would have green manures or some sort of cover crop every few years in our rotation. And then this is a way for the animals to get on the land and incorporate that and, and to, to cycle those nutrients a little bit better so we don't need, and that's a, our source of nitrogen and, and it improves the soil fertility altogether. It's also a great way to manage weeds. Um, it reduces the tillage needed for the uh, grain farmers, increases biodiversity, and is great at sequestering carbon and just doing over, overall ecological And this is something that uh, you actually do with a neighbor of yours, right? I do, yes. And that's one of the reasons why I'm super excited about this, because we just a couple years ago happened to mention that I went to this conference and people were talking about this grazing exchange idea, and he happens to have cattle. And so we got it, got talking and have been in partnership of 
Um, he brings his cows to my land uh, every summer, every spring and summer and fall, and he actually moves them around. So he's just a mile away, so he gets to come here and, and be close to his animals and see how they're doing every day, and then he moves them every day. So we're using the ro- rotational grazing method for this, and it's fantastic because we've seen benefits on both sides, both sides, both for him and for us. And this, this summer during the drought, um, he said that our our land did very well as far as yeah, providing food for the cattle for much longer than some of the other pasture land that he had his other other cattle on. The Manitoba Grazing Exchange website can be found at manitobagrazingexchange.com. Another look at what's happening in the markets heading into the close is coming up in just a moment. And now for another look at your farm news. Director of Policy and International Relations with the Canadian Cattlemen's Association says beef exports have stayed very strong. Fawn Jackson says when it comes to international trade, a high priority for the organization is the harmonizing of the U.S. and Canadian export certificates with South Korea. Canada and South Korea have uh, a certificate that is a little bit different than what uh, the U.S. and South Korea has, and it leads to segregation in U.S. Mar- in the U.S. market if packers are selling into the South Korean uh, market because they are required to keep the Canadian and the American cattle uh, separate. She notes they're also watching what's happening with China and Taiwan, as both made formal submissions to be included in the CPTPP. And some livestock producers may want to look into mixing molasses in with some of their lower quality straw as a way of extending their winter feed supplies. During the bitter cold snaps, animals' feed intake increases as they need the extra energy to stay warm. Livestock and feed extension specialist Catherine Lang says mixing in molasses can be a good option, but it's not a silver bullet. It isn't going to fix the fact that it is a lower quality forage. So it's not changing the fact that the straw is still straw or the slough hay is still slough hay. And we do have to be very careful about if animals are liking the taste of it and want to eat more, there could be a risk of impaction because those higher fiber feeds don't flow through the rumen fast enough and you can get some impaction happening. She notes the recommended application rate of molasses per 1,000 pounds of straw is 70 to 100 pounds, which works out to about $25 to $35 per bale. And we've come to the end of another Manitoba Farm Journal. I'm your host, Candace Dirksen. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us by email at thefarmdesk at goldenwest.ca. Today's closing numbers with more in-depth commentary on what's happening in the markets is coming up at 10 to 2 on the Markets Farm Program. I'm Candace Dirksen and thanks for listening. Have a good afternoon. We'll meet you back here Monday at 12 o'clock.